So at some point in your life, have you ever heard any of the following things from maybe your mom or your grandmother or that overly excited lunchroom monitor in the school cafeteria? Phrases like this, sit up straight, don't talk with food in your mouth, elbows off the table, and use a knife and fork when you eat that Snickers. You ever heard, you know, some of these things that that they're trying to get you to improve your etiquette at the table? Now, those aren't just silly rules. There's some stuff behind it. Zarif Hardy is the director of the Australian School of Etiquette, and she says this, the rules of etiquette are about making other people in your company, meaning whoever is around you, feel comfortable, never making them feel like they don't know or have done something awkward. In other words, table manners are a way to create and maybe even improve relationships in your life. So let's just kind of think through those things again, kind of in a practical way. We'll start off with uh, sitting up straight. Sitting up straight. I mean, if you're at a dinner table and you are hunkered over your soup bowl like the hunchback of Notre Dame and nobody can see your face, then people can't see you when you're talking to, to them and and. And they can't see your face when they are talking to you. In other words, hunkering down like that is is almost like an animal. And so you're kind of muffling your humanity in a way. And in so doing, you are hindering your communication and your relationships at the table. All right, what about talking with food in your mouth? Well, if you're trying to to share this really sweet story about one of your grandkids at the table, or maybe you're trying to tell everybody that you you won the school spelling bee that day, but your mouth is full of mac and cheese the whole time that you're talking, you know, we're not going to hear anything sweet about your grandkid. We're not going to hear anything sweet about what happened at your day at school. We're just going to hear a bunch of mumbled, garbled junk. The word I won with So in other words, Eating and talking at the same time, it kind of muffles your humanity a little bit because the other humans, they can't understand you. And so in muffling your humanity a little bit, you're also hindering your communication. You're hindering your relationships at the table. What about elbows off of the table? Zarif Hardy says this, you can go back to table etiquette from hundreds of years ago and it was just one of those rules that allows everyone to feel that they have space. When you put elbows on the table, you're extending the space setting that you've got. Okay, so it may not muffle your humanity, but it it does kind of muffle a sense of humility. You know, you're like, hey, I want more space. I'm the most important person at the table. That's, That's what happens when you put your elbows on the table. You start making you more important, at least from an etiquette standpoint. And if you are making you more important, guess what? That is going to hinder your communication and hinder your relationships at the table. Now, there's another kind of table manner that won't muffle your humanity. It won't muffle uh, your relationships. It won't muffle your humility or your communication in a sense. But it might muffle your Christianity. In other words, it's it's a table manner that if you don't have, it might be hard for people to actually see your faith in Christ. And and not just other people. It might be that without this table manner in your life, you have a hard time seeing your own faith. You have a hard time feeling your own faith. You have a hard time enjoying your own salvation. So what kind of table manner is that? 
Well, let's find out. Psalm 23, verse 5, very first part, says this. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. During the summer months, a a shepherd in ancient times would, would lead his sheep to a place that was a little higher, a little more spread out. It was known as a, a tableland. And King David, he was a shepherd growing up, so he, he knew a little bit about what the shepherd would have to do to get the tableland ready for the sheep. He'd have to go ahead of the sheep. He'd go ahead and he'd, he'd pull the weeds in that area and he'd make sure there was nothing blocking the watering hole and, and he would go and track the predators that were around the tableland. See, those predators, they were enemies of the sheep. And so in a sense, right in the middle of enemy territory, The shepherd was going to meet the seasonal needs of his sheep. He was going to make sure they had what they needed, and he was going to protect them no matter where they were. You see, most people know Psalm 23, even people that don't go to church, because it's this this famous, well-known song from the Bible. But it's not just a famous, well-known song with, with some flowery, poetic language. No, David uses beautiful language to talk about brutal realities. See, Psalm 23 is is about real life. Psalm 23 is is not just a song. See, it's about real predators. It's about real enemies. It's about real darkness. It's about real death. It's about real difficulty. But it's also about a real shepherd. And it's also about real victories over enemies. So what are some of the enemies in your life right now? Robert Morgan says we can kind of put all of our enemies in, in three basic categories. We have national enemies, we have personal enemies, and we have demonic enemies. So national enemies is, is pretty much everybody. You know, no matter what country you're from, no matter what country you live in, there's another country that doesn't like you. And there's nations that rise up against nations and there's wars and there's, and there's rumors of wars. And what did Jesus say was supposed to be our spiritual response to those wars and those rumors of wars and those nations rising up against nations? This is what Jesus said we should respond with, spiritually speaking. Matthew 24, 6. See that you are not frightened. Kind of a a big instruction, right? When we hear of wars and rumors of wars and nations against nations, Jesus says, see to it that you're not frightened. Why? Why should we not be frightened over those things? An old hymn gives us a, a pretty good picture of this. One of the verses goes like this. Crowns and thorns may perish, kingdoms rise and wane, but the church of Jesus constant will remain. Gates of hell can never against that church prevail. We have Christ's own promise, and that cannot fail. So, we're not frightened, but rather the hymn tells us what? Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before us. David faced national enemies. And what was the table manner that he pulled out? When he was faced with national enemies, what did he remind his heart and his mind and his soul? 
He reminded his heart and his mind and his soul that the Lord was his shepherd and that the Lord prepared a table before him in the presence of his enemies. We have national enemies. We also have personal enemies. We know about personal enemies, right? We may have occasionally, hopefully, temporarily personal enemies at home, right? Some moments where our spouse might be the enemy, where our parents might be the enemy, where the kids might be the enemy. You know, we we know a little bit about that. But maybe we face enemies in other places too, at school, at work, at the ballpark, at the gym, at PTO, in the neighborhood, in the community, in local government. Maybe we face enemies when we're in line at the mall. Maybe we face enemies when we're in traffic on the interstate. You know, sometimes our enemies aren't even people, right? Our personal enemies aren't persons. Sometimes it's, it's a little more difficult than that, right? Sometimes our, our personal enemies are, are anxiety and, and stress and anger and frustration and depression and discouragement. Sometimes it's sickness and disease. Sometimes it's failing health. See, we, we know about personal enemies because they're personal. You know, we, we get it because we have to deal with them all the time. And remember David, his best friend's father, and even people in his own family, they tried to assassinate him. So, so David, David knows a few things, because he'd seen a few things, about personal enemies. So what table manner did he pull out for his personal enemies? What, what did he do when he was faced with personal enemies. What was he reminding his heart and his mind and his soul? He reminded himself, you know what? The Lord is my shepherd and he prepares a table for me in the presence of even my enemies. Now national enemies and and personal enemies, I mean, we can kind of outline those or or list them, you know, on on a yellow legal pad. But what about demonic enemies? I mean, Those are a little less cut and dry, right? This is what Paul told the church at Ephesus, Ephesians 6, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, meaning in the the places of spiritual activity. Robert Morgan shared the story one time about a church leader who disagreed with him on some things and and was kind of challenging him. And this is how he challenged him. This is what he said. He said, we'd have to fight about one thing and another thing that I was in for a fight and that if I didn't fight with him over these issues, I wasn't much of a fighter. (laughs) God, dial it down, buddy. Man, fighting, fighting, fighting. So Morgan said, look, I I can fight as much as the next guy. He said, but according to the scripture, all of the fights that I have in my life are with the world, the flesh, or the devil. And so then Morgan asked the man this, if you want to fight with me, you'll have to decide which of those categories you fit into. (laughs) That's quick. Sometimes our personal enemies feel like demonic enemies. But please don't underestimate what the scripture teaches us. Satan and his spiritual agents are always creating and stirring evil. Always. In every place. 
So what do we know about these demonic enemies? What do we know about the, the forces of darkness that Satan controls? Well, according to the scriptures, we, we know a lot. Here's just a, a quick list that Ray Pritchard put together. They are powerful. They are numerous. They have different ranks. They are rulers. They are authorities. They are real demons. They are not on your side. They are wicked. They have no moral code. They are clever. They know your weak spots, and they are always ready to attack. So what table manner? would David pull out for his demonic enemies? When he's facing spiritual enemies, what is he going to remind his heart and his mind and his soul about? Well, he's going to remind himself, you know what? The Lord is my shepherd, and he prepares a table for me in front of my enemies. Somebody might say, well, you know, that sounds really good. Very poetic, very flowery language from the Bible. But what about when my salary gets cut? What about when things go really wrong at work? What if I even lose my job? What if my kids are pushing me over the edge? What if my spouse is pushing me over the edge? What if I can't pay my bills? What if my health is falling apart? What what then? What then? The psalmist in Psalm 42.3 said this, My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, Where is your God? He is so depressed that he can't sleep and he can't eat. He's so depressed that his pillowcase is soaking wet from his tears. And now his family and his friends and maybe even complete strangers, they're starting to come up to him. What's your deal, buddy? I mean, I thought you said you were some kind of Christian or something. Man, why can't you just suck it up and and move on? Where's your God now? What, What kind of God would allow you to suffer through something like this? Just because the shepherd takes care of the tableland and gets everything prepared does not mean that the shepherd and the sheep will not face danger and darkness and difficulty on the tableland. Seasons of darkness will come to every believer. And some of those seasons will last longer than other seasons. And sometimes in the middle of those seasons, there will be people who annoy you. How? They'll annoy you because they'll be the kind of people that act like they got an answer for every single problem you have. They'll annoy you because they'll say, oh, you just need to get over it and then move on. Get on with your life. They'll annoy you because they'll say, oh, well, this is my life verse. This is all you need. They'll annoy you because they'll say, oh, you just need to get a, a new hobby. Get a, get a new pet. Maybe get some new medication or take more medication. They'll say, you know what? I bet a a casserole and a pie and a cake, that'll help you through all this. Actually, that does help a little bit. So that one may not not be good for my list. And then there's going to be these people. that they'll come to you in the darkness and they'll say, see, I told you. God doesn't exist. 
Your God is not here. Your God does not care. Your God is not helping you. In the Old Testament, when the exodus was over from Egypt, there's a man named Dathan. And Dathan was, was one of the guys that was out saying, hey, where's God now? He brought us out here to the, to the desert just to, to leave us to die. Where's, where's he at? Billy Crystal, comedian, put in his routine a, a mockery of something from the epic movie, uh, The Ten Commandments. One of the people in the movie that played Dathan was Edward G. Robinson. Now, if you know anything about Edward G. Robinson, he is like the character that made the, the old school gangster famous in movies. I mean, he's, he's the gangster guy. So, of course, Billy Crystal says, you know, who was in charge of casting him for this role? And then he goes on to say how Edward G. Robinson handled the role. Yeah, yeah. Where's your Messiah now, see? Yeah. Where's your Moses now, see? What you gonna do now, now? It was gangster. It was not a biblical character. You may not have Edward G. Robinson show up at your door and do his gangster voice, but you know what? In the middle of your darkness, somebody will come up to you, and it might even be you. And they'll say, hey, where's your Messiah now? Where where is your God now in the middle of all of this? And David writes Psalm 23 for me and for you and for other believers. And he writes it with bold clarity. So that in that moment, with great joy and great confidence, we can say he's setting the table. He's always setting the table. He's not gone. He's here in the middle of my enemies. He is my shepherd right now. Jesus said in Luke 12, 24, Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. So Jesus tells his disciples, look, you know what? God's really great to the pretty, pretty turtle doves. So he'll be great to you. No, that's not what he says. He said, God takes care of the ravens, the unclean ravens, the ravens who can be annoying, aggravating scavengers. If God takes care of them, then guys, you can be confident he will take care of you. That's some pretty comforting advice from Jesus to his followers. In a sense, in writing of the table. David's kind of reminding his heart maybe prophetically about what Jesus spoke about. And reminding his heart of the table, it's, it's almost like, well, I know God provides for the animals. He, he provides for the birds. He even provides for the ravens and turkey buzzards. So, so if he gives them food, then I know he's going to give me food, and he's even going to do it in the presence of my enemies. Why? How do we know that's true? Well, because Jesus says what? He says that believers are more valuable to God than birds. Well, how do we know that's true? Well, we know that's true because God the Father sent God the Son to come and to die, to pay the penalty of sin so that we would know that life is not just about living and dying and eating and facing enemies. 
Adrian Rogers said that a truce will never be called between Satan, his angels, and Christians. There'll never be a truce on this earth. But the battle can only run on this earth. The battle can't run beyond this earth. And how do we know that? I mean, how do we know that's true when when sometimes it feels like God is not doing anything in the Middle East? How do we know that's true when it it feels like God may not be working in in the ER or in the ICU? How do we know that's true when when it feels like God may not be working in the state house or the White House or in our house? How can a believer know that the enemies of this life only have power in this life? How do we know that's true? Well, there's lots of promises in the Bible. I'll just pull out two that help us know that it's true. One of those promises is grim and one of those promises is great. First, we'll do the grim one. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I know, one of you is thinking, ah, Dow messed up. (laughs) Wrong verse. His slide's not right. That's not a grim promise. Man, that's a great promise. That's fantastic. You're right. John 3.16 is full of the eternal promises of, of life and love and joy and salvation and satisfaction. But it is also full of the curse of rejection. Because that one word, perish, is real. Those who reject Jesus will perish. That's grim. And some people don't just casually reject Jesus. They hate Jesus. And they hate anybody that follows after Jesus. And so what's the the promise for those haters, for those enemies of the gospel? Well, the scripture has a lot of different ways of describing it. I'm just going to kind of pull one together that pulls it all together. Octavius Winslow put it this way. Those who hated and persecuted the saints on earth, who maligned, slandered, and tortured them, will now gnash their teeth and gnaw their tongues with rage. When they see the objects of their malice and the victims of their torture sitting down with the glorious company of the apostles and the goodly fellowship of the prophets and the noble army of martyrs in the kingdom of their father and they themselves forever shut out. That That's a summary of what the scripture says. See, the enemies of the Lord and the enemies enemies of the Lord's people, they, they have power on this earth to cause mayhem and chaos and hurt and pain. But their power is limited. Because if they do not repent and turn to Christ, then one day, they will be forever shut out of the kingdom of God. That's the grim promise of why we know that all God's promises in Jesus are true. Here's the great promise. God's eternal truth is being revealed to John the Revelator. In Revelation 19.9, it says this, 
Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you're not a Christian, we will totally give you a pass that that verse makes no sense. And we would plead for you to come to Christ. But if you are a Christian, own that verse. That we have been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The enemy does not have the last word. The last supper for a believer is the first supper. It's the banquet of heaven, and it never ends. Alexander McLaren said a long time ago, this is the condition of God's servant. Always conflict, but always a spread table. No matter who your enemy is right now, no matter what your enemy is right now, there's always a table. It's always spread out. It's always there. That's the promise of God. Now, let's see if we can kind of set this down in daily life just just a little more. Last summer, I told you about Paul Knight. Paul was born on the 4th of July. This year, he turned 22. He lives with multiple disabilities, including blindness and autism. He has a number of, of cognitive impairments, and he has a seizure disorder. Tests show that that he has the intellectual capacity of an 18-month-old child. So he's 22, but he functions like an 18-month-old child. He's very short in stature. And he loves singing praises to God. (laughs) Anywhere and everywhere. This is what his dad, John, writes. During school therapy sessions in the grocery store or at a restaurant. (laughs) Anywhere he's at. People thinking he is much younger than he is will sometimes say, out of the mouth of babes, you have prepared praise. But then John notes that a lot of us don't consider what that whole Bible truth says. Here's the whole Bible truth, Psalm 8, verse 2. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. That is amazing. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you are establishing praise to cease the enemy. John Knight goes on to say, so if this is the case, and I believe it is, my weak and disabled son with all his limitations is part of God's plan to still the enemy and the avenger. That's so cool. He keeps going. And that makes him an effective warrior against a vile and spiritually violent enemy equipped by God to do what those who are strong and proud cannot do no matter their physical or intellectual giftings. Little Paul Knight, a warrior. He goes on. He has been graced with both innocence and confidence. When he sings, he sings without fear or any thought of what others might think. He proclaims frequently who God is. And what does that mean for your life in the grocery store? Listen, John goes on. Can you imagine 
what that does to the evil one when my boy and all the others like my son sing? How many unclean spirits have our brothers and sisters with significant cognitive disabilities silenced by their praises? One more step. And how often have we been spiritually protected through those in our care? Think about that the next time you see a disabled child. That child might be a warrior on your behalf. Sometimes God's table is a table land for sheep. Sometimes God's table is Paul Knight singing in a grocery store. And sometimes God's table is a table. Eight days ago, our neighbor's house burned in a fire. There are so many stories that I could tell you over what's happened over the last eight days and and really on that day, the way that God's power and his mercy and his grace and his love was shown through Andre and Tia and their children in the midst of devastation. And not just them, but shown through so many other people on the most devastating day of their lives. Too many to share in one place and those stories continue to unfold. But there's one moment of that day that, that captured my heart but it didn't capture my heart until two days later. It happened on Friday and and Sunday afternoon when I sat down to start working on this sermon. Something grabbed my attention as I looked at God's truth. You see, that day, most of the neighborhood, we were there helping them in the morning, and then then I came over here in the afternoon and did some work, and and when I got back home in the early evening, I pulled up in the driveway, and there was a little crowd of neighbors and family and friends all standing across the street just looking at the burned out house. And so I walked over and joined the conversations and, and Andre, he was across the street with a couple of the firemen that had come back by. And, and let me just say, the Lexington County firemen were unbelievable that day. And I wanna encourage you, we, we've got at least one with us and, and you know another one. Please encourage your firemen and your law enforcement and your EMT folks. They see these things all day, every day. Please encourage them. But they were just back at the house, checking on the house and checking on the family. And Andre's standing across the street talking to them. And, and Tia's on the other side with all of us. And, and there's just a lot of little conversations. And at one point, Tia says, you know, it's so funny. That dining room table downstairs, we, we hardly ever eat at it. But you know what? It's funny. It looks like it hasn't even been touched. We can go over there and eat on it right now. Well, all of us around, we kind of smiled with kind of a a grin of kind of curious amazement and astonishment. But two days later, I wasn't smiling when I thought about that comment from Tia. Because see, I sat down and, and started reading David's words. And all of a sudden, it hit me that in the presence of the enemies of fire and destruction, the God that Andre and Tia love and the God that loves them and the God who was and is and is to come in the presence of those enemies, he preserved and prepared a table. Now somebody might say, oh, that's just a religious sentimental word picture over something that randomly happened in a fire. You can say that, and some do. 
But if someone has ever surrendered their heart to Christ, if someone has ever received the invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb, it's not just a table. That table and that picture is a reminder that today and tomorrow and forever, the Lord is our shepherd. 